1: Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Yo Samson Folk. After a long hiatus, was kind of giving myself a break before we jump back into things. But the draft is coming fast and furious. We're 10 days, 9 days away from it right now. So I thought, who better to talk to than a draft expert about the Raptors' prospects? Who they're looking at? Who's worth trading up towards? And a guy who knows a lot about the game, PD. You can find him on Twitter at abovethebreak Three. He has one of the best bang for your buck patrons out there because a lot of the stuff on there is free actually and you can go read very detailed reports on a number of things, whether it be guys who are in the league or prospects coming into it. He has a great handle on what makes players go, the development to get there. PD, how you doing, man? How you doing?
0: I'm doing wonderful. I'm excited to talk about the Raptors. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Okay. So first thing, let's get right into it then. We're talking about guys who might fall in this draft. And it's been referred to as a flat draft where it's the guys at the very top maybe subtract the, well, I guess the conventional wisdom has been there's a top three if you listen to the mainstream guys. Maybe if you go into the more granular things, it gets a little bit more flat. Maybe it gets a bit more top heavy depending on who you're reading. But there is the aspect of the Raptors looking at guys who might want to trade up to get them. We've heard about Masai going after Shea Gilgis-Alexander at times, and he also went after Giannis Antetokounmpo. Those attempts to get higher up in the draft to grab those guys, or in Giannis's case, just get into the draft. Who are those guys for the Raptors that you're seeing would be worth it to trade up for?
0: So I think the first name that jumps out is Killian Hayes, um, who's somebody that, depending on draft order and depending on draft I would be comfortable taking in the top three. Um, You know, the Warriors don't necessarily have a need for it. Um, but Killian's skill set is one that would really help a team that needs a secondary creator. Um, we're talking about a, a six, six hyper creative left-handed like guard wing um, who provides uh, three level ability in terms of uh, creativity can create out of pick and rolls can, uh, can basically be, uh, both uh, an adult on offense, somebody who you know is capable of, of running an, uh, a scheme and being the focus point, depending on what you have, um, which is great for this uh, Raptors team, who kind of can use more juice, but also has times where you know Kyle and and uh, and Siaka need their minutes. So it's the idea of a scalable uh, a scalable guard uh, who fits the timeline, sort of. And when, if he develops as, as Kyle gets older, then you have a star in your hands that could really uh, help this team become a dynasty in terms of uh, contending in the East, or it could just help right now. Um, I think that that's the greatest disparity between uh, people on Twitter.com and uh, to what we consider mainstream sites is the uh, adoration of Killian Hayes. Um, the draft people uh, on Twitter really, really enjoy him. Uh, the NBA people, uh, including the ones that I've talked to. Worry about the standard stuff of like how athletic is he, how, you know, left hand dominant is he. And I think that um, those are things I'm not really worried about because he's a really good passer, even though his left right, even though he is left hand dominant. Um, usually when you have guys who are super left hand dominant, um, you worry about them being mediocre. But Killian was legitimately excellent in a pretty good league. Um, and his creativity allows him to create angles so that even if that right hand gets too you know, uh, mediocre, you're now looking at a fully ambidextrous creative player.
1: Yeah. When I watch Killian, I mean, it's, it's easy to think of D'Lo and especially since D'Lo was such a gifted passer at Ohio state as well. And a guy who not only sees angles, but is willing, you know, willing enough to go after them. Like he's not exactly a risk averse passer if we're talking about Dilo, but with Killian, Is it just the, I guess, the middling numbers as far as three point shooting that I guess draft people on Twitter, myself as well, think will probably bump up? We like that. I guess I like his his mechanics a lot more than some other shooters in the draft or guys who are sitting a little bit lower. I know we're going to talk about Tyrese Maxey at some point, another guy who probably people are expecting if they're high on him to kind of ameliorate with his shooting percentages, but Killian is a shooter. And so when you're looking at how he might get into the Raptors roster, is this a guy that we could see fall out of the top ten? Is he could he go as low as like a fifteen? What are what is his range, do you think?
0: Um his range, depending on who you talk to, is probably from four to sixteen. Like there there are people who will say that he's like a late teens pick. Uh, which to me um, is madness. Um, I think the shooting comes down to how comfortable um, a player development staff is teaching rhythm. Killian is a much, much, much better shooter off the dribble than he is catch and shoot, because he doesn't uh, standardize the rhythm of his shot. So a lot of times you'll see him, you know, it's left foot, right foot, then there's a beat, then he shoots. Other times it's you know off the hop, and it's one fluid motion. So standardizing his jumper is going to be uh, the difference from his his catch and shoot numbers. Um, having the Raptors player development staff um, and player development track record um, has sort of been the metric that I use to to create how much teams should be afraid of drafting projects. Um, saying repeatedly, you don't have the Raptors development staff. Uh, you, the Raptors do have the Raptors development staff. So if anyone should be confident in taking swings on guys um, who may be a little bit more difficult of uh, of, of development. Or you know things that other people may still see on the mystical side, rather than the uh, what can be improved side. Um, it would this is this is a marriage made in heaven.
1: Yeah, I would be really excited. He's to me. I, I'm not sure about Lamelo Ball. I'm not a draft guy. I've picked up on six or seven guys. I've read some of your stuff. I read Robel and I read like a lot of the mainstream stuff as well. So I, my opinions are an amalgamation of all that kind of stuff. But Killian, I think, is my favorite prospect in the draft. So I'd be ecstatic to see him go to the Raptors and see how he could work in their system. And so let's talk about a guy who is perceived to be a home run or a bust in winning. That's Poku. What do you think about him, and if we're talking about the Raptors, developing a guy, is he maybe the biggest example of that?
0: Yeah, um, so Alexey Pokashevsky um, is the most interesting player in this class, hands yeah. down. Um, he is like a seven-foot like combo guard. Um, he played in the Greek B division uh, by methods of not his own choosing. He clearly uh, didn't want to be there. And uh, in, in Europe, there's not as much of, there is no incentive to play players who are going to go to the NBA. So he got, you know, 20 minutes a game in the Greek second division. Um, there's going to be comparisons to guys like Chris Taps Porzingis, and Dragan Bender because Alexei is like white and European. Um, he makes both of them uh, look like the shyest people on earth. Um, he's essentially seven foot J.R. Smith in terms of his decision making. Uh, he will attempt to throw passes that I've never seen another person throw, um, whether it's like fake behind the back pass, underhand lobs to like 5'11 point guards. And it's like, I understand what you're thinking. Um, the audacity is the strongest thing. Like his strongest skill is that he will try things. And oftentimes they're like of the mo- Lamella ball stripe where it's like, no, this is a legitimately creative. Guy who sees himself as as a problem solver for a defense, um, he is really skinny. He's built pretty strangely: um, long neck, big head, uh, somewhat wide shoulders. It's not super concerning, but like instead of thinking of him as like, oh, he's a seven foot one guy, he's probably more like small forward size, but with you know some uh, some different body sizes uh, on defense he is a fantastic rotation player um he is capable of understanding angles at a pretty crazy rate considering his uh his weird development background um when you watch skinny guys you always want to wonder like if they have a lot of fight in them and poku thinks he can stand up to you know the monsters of the world uh, if there's a seven footer trying to dunk, he's going to go up and try to get it because in his mind, like that's the ball that he, uh, he should have same with steals. Um, so you get a, a player who can shoot. Um, he takes a lot of step backs, a lot of double step backs, uh, off the dribble. It, it damages his, his percentages. I think the shot is better than the numbers. Um, he's 40, 32, 78 across three areas. Um. But again, the, the shot selection is you know a bored teenager who's underchallenged by his, his variety. Um, half his shots were threes, but only 20% of his shots were, were free throws. Again, not ideal. But when you have the Raptors' development system, what you can do is take a guy with super high feel who's on the very skinny side and needs reps. You can send him between 905 and the Raptors. You can give him minutes when it's needed. You can have him practice with the team and challenge him and then send him down to 905 and say, "Okay, take nine threes in this half. See what happens. Um, This is the development model that you would want for, you know, high field players who need reps to sort what they are as players Um, and having a team where uh, your best post defender is your uh, Philadelphia point guard, Um, you know, you're uh your best wing defender is like just a jumbo wing uh your best ball handler is uh covered in butter pascal siakam like this is a team that sort of is built on accentuating some unique characteristics and if you were to say i'm a successful team with a successful player development program um who can afford a big swing this is the player who's most unique in this class fight. a huge amount and one that also makes a lot of sense with um with what the Raptors may need in the future,
1: as far as his shooting, are we looking at what's what's the disparity between pull up and catch and shoot for Poku?
0: Uh, I can pull that up on. Oh no, I don't. I don't have this energy handy. If you give me one moment, I can pull
1: that up. Um, While think, you're doing that, as far as like the the mechanics where you're referring to rhythm with Killian, do you have any insights as far as Poku is concerned?
0: Yeah, it's his it's his lower body that seems to be the like his rhythm is pretty good. Um, he has some hand placement issues and he has, uh, again, being a skinny guy, you're going to have some lower leg issues, um, which is to be expected. I think that the, on the upper body, the biggest concern is that he shoots, uh, out instead of up, um, leading to some flat and strange angled, like hard shots that just clang off the rim. Um. And then his gather point is a little bit funny. I think that he has a diagonal shooting bed, so like his fingers uh, don't make an, an L. It's sort of uh, if you hold your hand like a karate chop, and then try to you know push your finger forward uh, or push your index finger forward, it's not going to work. You're going to want to shoot with your um, with your ring finger or your middle finger, and so he'll miss in a number of different directions, especially off the dribble. Um, so the mechanics are fine. Um, but the consistency of those mechanics are a little more of a problem, and okay. I think that if you're looking for a guy who uh, played in a you know a lower level of Greece, and I know the joke that it looks like the YMCA, but like these are dudes who are stronger than him, so he had to deal with actual problems of being like, it's Europe, so fouls don't exist, and um, and like they when he was handling people would get into his handle. And just, you know, make sure that he was facing similar problems to what he'll face in the NBA. It wasn't a case of, like, you know, a, a true center playing against five foot seven dudes where you could just dunk over them. Um, the It's much closer to. Um, like what Denny faced in Israel, where, like, there's a similar problem. Um, it's on the opposite side in terms of, of competition level, but there is. Uh, there is a similarity with the problems that he faced with his overseas level and what he will face in, uh, in the NBA.
1: Just as something I'm interested in, since you know so much about the development of the game and how shooters develop, and maybe you haven't written a book like Nick nurse or anything like that, but you seem to have a good uh, grasp on it. As far as guys who achieve really high numbers in, as far as plurality or like their, or the term be? the, the, Just how many they're launching, like guys like Marcus Smart or guys like Luca. I know they're obviously not one-to-one comparisons, those two, but guys who there's a lot of catch and shoot in their game. In Marcus Smart's case, a guy who shoots significantly better as far as, or not catch and shoot, sorry, pull up, a guy who shoots significantly better when pulling up and Luca, a guy who pulls up all the time but has a middling percentage. It's even, you know, it's like, what, around 32%. What do you think about the disparity between pull up and catch and shoot and which do you find is a better indicator of where a guy is going to go and how he's able to manipulate a defense or create spacing with his shot
0: so as a as a creator you need to be able to shoot off the dribble um and the effectiveness of off the dribble shooting is going to directly correspond to how likely that a you know wing to small size player is going to be useful um if you're not if you don't have any creation equity, um you need to be able to catch and shoot. Um uh there's a there's a guy named Christian Doolittle in this draft who like doesn't take catch and shoots, he's only shoots off the dribble, and he's a good shooter off the dribble, but just never takes catch and shoots because he's bad at them. Um and he's you know a a, a you know a, a very deep sleeper. Because like what are you supposed to do with that? Like if you, you can't spot him up, you sort of have to like what have him catch it at like three steps beyond the three-point line, have them dribble up and shoot. Like, this gets into, like, deep Reddit thought territory where uh, people are doing experiments on the future of the game. Um, I think that with everyone's mechanics, there are holes in them. Um, Guys who have, like, really, like, wide gather positions struggle to shoot on catch-and-shoots because they're used to shooting, you know, way off their hips. Um, And, you know, there's an, an evolutionary development from their usage in... Uh, high school to or youth, high school youth to college pros as it goes forward. Like we'll talk about this with Maxi. Some um, is that like you have to retrain people, and it can be difficult to adjust to roles because everyone has an internal uh, usage for how they believe the game should be played. Um,
1: like this was Lonzo's struggle. Was that like you could
0: goad him into not shooting because his, in his brain, if he if he shot three shots in a row, he would not shoot the fourth time because he had this internal logic of. How the game should be played, and it wasn't him shooting four times in a row. And a so if you you know if you shot twice, you could sell it on that next pass because he was not going to do it. Um, I think with Poku, he wants to shoot a lot more off the dribble than uh, I think I would be comfortable with, especially initially as you solve the uh, shooting inconsistencies um, for guys with great touch. There's obviously hope that they're going to shoot like that's always the bet with Eaton. Wonderful uh, mid-range guys. Uh, So, to answer your question in a long way, it depends on how you want them to be used. Um, But the most important thing is finding um, where the holes in their mechanics are and trying to minimize the exposure to their difficulties. Um, And figuring out the best way possible to create a safe environment for them. It was like Marcus Smart was allowed to take a whole bunch of wide open threes for a long time because eventually it was going to be needed for him to shoot them. Um, and you know, he's turned the corner on that. Uh, but creating an environment where it's like, look, if you're open, you got to shoot. It doesn't matter how many you miss. Like you can be the worst shooter in the NBA. And I think for a period of time, he was on a certain volume, but the math was eventually going to shake out because he had good touch and, and had a history of scoring. Um, and to look at Poku's numbers, like, you see another guy. You see a guy who has uh, incredible touch and, and has some very interesting indicators. And at a certain point, if you're a good team, like, why not?
1: Before we get on to Maxi, because I'm assuming most of these guys, I guess, for the— you can, you can interrupt me if I'm incorrect, but we'll say they'll command roughly the same package— If it's because it doesn't matter which guy is falling. I mean, maybe it does in the conversations and how many, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess teams are trying to get up in the draft. But let's I guess because we don't know what they're thinking. Let's assume it's static. Is this like a Norman Powell plus X and O? Is this X and O plus Malcolm Miller? Like what, what do you think it takes to get into the middle of the draft for the Raptors? from 29 let's and let's assume that 29 is packaged in yeah um i would say norman powell 29 and then like
0: probably taking on a little bit worse of a contract like that makes sense to me i think that um this draft has a lot of interesting players um in the second plateau so like you sort of have this first like eight or whatever that depend on team fit and then like eight to 20 are guys that like for the right developmental situation and team uh, framework are either incredibly useful or just like teams can do nothing with them. So I think there's gonna be a lot of teams who have like, you know, 12 or, or 16 trying to move back and trying to solidify uh, themselves into a playoff team. Um, and I think we're gonna see a lot of good teams try to move up to find guys that they like, like teams that need uh, lane sprinters who could shoot, so like the, Oklahoma, the like traditional Oklahoma City guy. Are going to love RJ Hampton. They're gonna be like he's the fastest guy in this draft. He has a thirty, you know, five thirty-seven inch vertical, um, and he's a developing shooter. That's extremely valuable to a team that needs lane runners. But most bad teams like that's not a checklist item for them. That's not a foundational item. So I think that there's going to be a lot of sellers in that range, um, and guys like Maxi uh, are extraordinarily valuable if you have a, a jumbo initiator.
1: So we're saying a guy like, for example, next to or jumbo initiator, as far as like heliocentric, or a big guy like a Jokic, or um, a uh...
0: jumbo. To me, is anybody who uh, it requires a defense to stop from getting to the rim. Like it does, pa- Pascal fits in that. Like you can't just take one guy with Pascal because if you leave Pascal one on one, like you need to send help over top. So a defense is already tilted just by the presence of a jumbo initiator being on the floor it it takes four guys to go ball. it takes so i think that if you want to like really ratchet this up and and think of it as heliocentric but i think that at a lower level it's just guys that are automatically like a defense is in rotation because they have the ball in their hands
1: so so sorry go ahead so like
0: if you know if you run if if pascal catches it at, at 21 and is dribbling hard to his right um a defense has to be at that midline and they have to be sending help. And should he pass out to say a Tyrese Maxey, a guy whose struggle in college was that he couldn't be the defense straight up. He just couldn't, he couldn't be the guy who made the defense rotate, but as a legendary finisher, as a guy who makes good reads when a defense is tilted, that's suddenly an extraordinarily valuable player archetype. Now, if I'm you know a team that needs a primary Maxey probably isn't going to be that useful to me unless I, I believe that he's the finishing or that the, the the high school slash UIBL shooting numbers were real and the Kentucky shooting numbers or whatever, um, which is a thing that I personally believe. But if you're just looking at this as a, as a team who has the guy who can make the first rotation, suddenly Maxi is 10 times more valuable to me than it would be to like, I don't know, Detroit who just like can't do anything with him.
1: Mm. So like the fit would be similar to Eric Gordon on Houston, like a guy who can really punch a gap And punish like the weak side of a defense a rotating defense and a guy who will just pay just operating that tertiary tertiary role
0: yeah um it 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 very similar to that and like you know just like you know how milwaukee has like seven dudes where you're like they had this good this guy he can shoot and he you know he he's strong um it's just this this morass of of skills that are you know attacking gaps finishing at the rim making free throws the ability to shoot down the line and all of his uh, individual flaws, be they like the the ability to read, you know, two defenders at once, um, or you know, maybe lacking the straight point guard defense, like he can he can guard up, but he can't necessarily guard, you know, uh, point of attack ones. Uh, that doesn't really matter when you have Kyle Lowry. Like there are they're the type of players that good teams have make maxi extremely valuable type of players that bad teams have make maxi look bad
1: okay so of the three guys you said that the perfect marriage is killian hayes plus raptors poku sounds like another guy who's ideal for them with their ability to go as you said to kind of oscillate between 905 and raptors and to just go between those two and maxi obviously a guy if the raptors keep fred van vliet the Terrence Davis stuff regarding his alleged, well, there's charges laid against him for quite a few things that involve um, hitting his girlfriend, among other things. And their, their guard positions are kind of in flux right now. It seems like Maxie and Killian Hayes slide in there right away. What position does Poku kind of slide into? Just to go back to that quick, what position I mean- does Poku slide into on that roster?
0: I think that he slides into the idea of, um, like, if you wanted to play OG down, if you wanted to get as many, uh, like, if you wanted to space for shooting and you wanted to go with, like, a blitz lineup where you're just putting as many speedy people on the floor, uh, maybe it's it's a Fred Kyle lineup, Um, maybe it's, uh, you know, Maybe it's three guards, Poku and Og at the five. Like you can use this as a way of getting to uh, individual lineups. It also maybe lineups where you go super big and Poku's the ball handler with an extra shooter in the corner. I think that with Poku, the idea probably is that like he'll contribute like ten minute spurts his rookie year, where he's you know shot blocking and you know trying weird stuff on offense. But that it's an idea towards like the team that OG might be the second best player on or the first best player on. Like it's a, it's a play for small minutes now and large minutes later. You,
1: you would kind of fit at not, he wouldn't be Chris Boucher, but it emulates some of the things that we saw Chris Boucher kind of bring off the bench a little bit this past year. If, if I'm yeah. reading you correctly.
0: Yeah. He'd be like hyper offensive Chris Boucher. Mm. Like, uh, it, it would most likely be a, a punt on the first two years just because of the strength level. Like I think that focus floor is, is, uh, is much higher than people think just because like guys who are really good at um, rotational defense um, uh, with good timing uh, don't really fail that often. That's just not like a skill that, that flops uh, if the, you know, his body breaks down. Uh, but again, like the list of guys who are absolutely unplayable because they were too skinny is not that long. Um, so I think that this would be more of a move if um, you know Van Fleet were to leave and there wasn't maybe a replacement for him, and suddenly the timeline shifts a little bit because this team may not be um, the title team next year. It may take two years to to, to gear back up. I think that Poku makes sense on that timeline. But again, when you're facing a draft like this, you can figure out what you want each team in the future to look like. Uh, because there's so many different pathways to value as a good team.
1: So we're talking about the hellish blitzing defense of the Raptors, and that kind of makes me want to go to Zeke Nagy. He had an incredible shuttle drill time. And before we start talking about him and how he might fit into the Raptors defense, and we start talking about guys at the Raptors, I suppose, regular spot 29 of Maxi, Hayes, Poku. Who do you like the best? Who's your favorite prospect of those guys? And with that, wh- who would you think is the most realistic for the Raptors to go and get? Um,
0: I would say Killian's the most realistic to go and get um, because I feel like Masai continually bets on uh, high feel guards. I think that's a thing that seems to be... Uh, one of his personal favorite things is he he gets linked to these guys who can read the floor pretty well, um, and that would be what Killian can do. And if you're expecting a port into a playoff team, you would want a young guy who can read the floor. Um, also, you know the difference in size between Hayes, Mac, Hayes and Maxi is uh is pretty dramatic. And if you're worried about you know Maxi maybe being a, maybe being a touch too small for playoff basketball, Hayes would offer that. Um nope.
1: Okay. As far as I guess let's start Zeke Naji. then. Big year, freshman of the year. He had he had a great season as far as college. He had that incredible shuttle speed. And I'm wondering as far as what you've seen from him, is that speed being applied in a beneficial way defensively? And does he have like the reads that you're saying like Poku makes these great reads in help side and like he's a great rotational defender? guys who make great reads can stick in the league usually so how does sorry go ahead
0: my apologies um i think that
1: uh naji
0: can get two spots um like he's he's very good at hedging um he could be a like guy who switches you know three four five at some point um i think that switch defender is one of those terms that um, exists in theory a lot more than it exists in practice just because like the idea of a guy who can switch one through five, um, you know, covering uh, Joel Embiid and De'Aaron Fox, is just, it's a dude that doesn't exist of LeBron James. Um, and even he might be past that point. I think that uh, with Najee, you'd really have to like, you, you need to put him next to a great communicator while he's fantastic at getting out to spots on hard edges or soft edges. He struggles with his return pass. So he will get out to a spot, stop the ball handler. And then when he used to plug back into the defense, there is an issue with that. Um, it's sort of like the inverse of Marcus All, who like barely would get to places and then he plug back in perfectly. And you're like, how did you recover that well? Like, you slow old man. Um, so that to me strikes me as a young person thing, but it will get absolutely eaten alive um, on, in playoff basketball. Cause you could just hit that with like Spain or really drag out the pick and roll and make those help rotations, uh, you know, longer and longer. When he has to recover after the after the hedge, um, the shooting is real. Um, listed, you know, twenty nine percent on small volume, but Arizona is not a place that allows uh, anyone really space, especially their bigs. Um, he was known as a shooter uh, in high school in AAU. Um, small block rate, but again, uh, Arizona has been known to, to depress that a little bit. I think that he's an interesting pick at twenty nine. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think of him as the most imaginative pick, especially considering the breadth of the uh, play development program. He's a guy who like, will be a, a solid guy, almost assert- assuredly. But I don't think that he would be the best allocation of resources because the that threshold is so easy to get, especially in this draft.
1: Yeah, his shooting, it looks like a really solid base. Like, it's a very fundamental straight up and down jumper, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... He has like the the jumper of the guy you would show in like shooting videos. Like for for a guy who's that big, like when the camera pans out, you're like, wow, it's straight up and down. You know, it's a little robotic looking, but that doesn't really bother me as long as the numbers shake out. But like, you forget that he's you know an almost seven foot tall person because you're him shoot. You're like, that's a good stroke. Oh, he's just he's a center. That's a really nice stroke. Um, it's it's a good uh it's an especially good jumper for pick and pops um just because of how consistent the timing is um i don't expect versatility from him like you aren't going to run him off pin downs or anything like that um which is based on on what i've seen previously but like that doesn't seem impossible down the line you know second contract Naji is probably shooting off, you know off off some pin downs or some uh some big to big actions but again this goes to a timeline question of with this 29th pick do you want people who contribute now do you want people who contribute now with a, a bet on upside later? Or do you want people who are all upside later?
1: What do you like for the Raptors as far as like if you're idealizing your version of their team that has the most success and has the biggest payoff from this pick at 29? Who's your guy? Um, I mean, if I can get Grant Riller, I would love that. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's like a legendary finisher at the yes. rim. He's immaculate.
0: Yeah, um, he, he finishes uh, better than quite a few, um, like, college centers. Um, it's it's nuts. There's the, you know, standard caveat about he didn't necessarily play the greatest competition in the CAA, but watching him finish, there's nothing about it that you think. I mean, he did play games, you know, against uh, higher-ranked uh, Ken Palm teams, but when you watch the finishes, there's nothing about it that says, like, this is a fluke or he wouldn't do that versus, you know, an NBA-sized guy. There's... Just incredible contortion, the ability to find angles, the ability to create space, like everything you could want from a, an older guard uh, playing at a lower level, Grant really does it.
1: So when we're talking about Grant, when we're looking at his fit on the Raptors, let's say it's time for him to get to his second contract. We're looking at an extension. What would you expect his role to be within the team?
0: Uh, like, I mean, I think that he would just, Take all of the possessions that Fred VanVleet has now. Like that's the role that you would want him in. He's not the guy who's going to carry an offense um, at an NBA level. You have to expect some translation knockdown from the, you know, twenty-two and five he averaged it um, a- in college. But the idea of a secondary guy who can create portable offense from a variety of different mechanisms, who's you know capable as a distributor and as a shooter um as well as just getting their own bucket um especially against you know second lines in the nba um in a world where pascal or og has continued their ability to to create you have really just to, to fill in
1: the gaps in that um in a multitude of different ways what's his uh what's his defense like i haven't seen really anything as far uh, as his defense goes he has college superstar
0: defense uh so he's pretty much just out there saving energy um there's I mean, he's a strong dude, so I think that like he's gonna be like passable bad probably in the uh in the league. I mean, it's difficult when you when you're the in team's entire offense and you're getting doubled every single possession, basically, or getting five, you know, five sets of eyes on you every single possession. Um it's hard to also like really uh turn out major effort on defense. But um it's a concern. It's it's a major concern.
1: Okay. As far as, okay, let's move to another guy then that you ri- you wrote about extensively, a guy that Raptor's Twitter actually likes quite a bit, and a guy who also played in France similar to Killian, Theo Maladon. I So I have a little snippet written about him. I'll read it off. So somebody who Masai has been, I guess, linked to back in January – there's comparisons a little bit to SGA, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I see that a little bit just with how he finishes those long loping steps and these kind of extended finishes at the rim, some of them underhand. I like a lot. He's he's talented. But as you laid out in your writing, quote, my biggest worry is that he may be the true neutral guard on an NBA floor, so capable to be league average and so risk averse to be unwilling to be more. So... Talented manipulators get lost in the shuffle all the time. DeLon Wright, I think, is a good example of that. Is Nick Nurse's flowing read and react system a fit for Maladon? Would you be excited to see him drafted to Toronto?
0: I think that it would be a good fit, but I think that excited might be a little far. Because Teo seems to fit the, whatever container he's in. But if you give him a larger role, he'll take it. But he doesn't go beyond that. So, when there's two-on-ones, um, he'll throw the safe pass almost every single time. Um, he waits until there's, like, a really low, low, low percentage chance of a turnover before he does anything. Um, like, if you if you watch Poku and then watch Teo back-to-back, back you get whiplash. Because one dude is throwing into windows that don't exist yet, or, like, don't exist on this plane of reality. And then Teo is, like, waiting until there's a zero percent chance of a turnover before throwing it. Um, it's difficult to get a guy to break away from that. Um and it it extends beyond his passing. His passing is the most obvious one where you're like, okay, you could just throw a no look and it'd be a dunk. And instead he takes an extra dribble and passes down. But it presents in his finishing, it presents in his game management. Um, it presents in his shot selection. Um, he's not a unwilling shooter, but he doesn't take shots that the team couldn't get a better one later in that possession.
1: So as far as like the shots he's creating He's not willing to be adve- adventurous enough to get the, the really easy buckets. Like, for example, Kyle Lowry, who I know is a very tough guy yeah. to be compared to. But Lowry is constantly presenting like he's good at the little pocket pass to surge on the short roll or on the pick and pop. Like he has those in his bag, but there's a variance to his passing that always keeps the defense on his toes. And Maladon is more so formulaic in what he's creating.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it feels very, um, like, you know the criticism of the Rockets where you feel like you're watching the same thing over and over again? That's what Maladon's decision-making feels like to me, where it's like you can sort of just, judging by what the defense gives you, you can bet pretty consistently on what he's going to do. Um, I think that the shooting is going to work out. Um, He's a guy who shoots, you know, across his three levels is 42, 33, 77 um there's some you know some small tweaks that need to be made but that's not the thing that really concerns me i think that with tail like i don't see how he becomes a star um which like for the raptors is probably not necessary but like there are routes for guys late in this draft um if i can go on a uh a small sure. uh thing here like the last decade has or you know from basically 2005 to 2015 we see like the intersection of like advanced stats and x's and o's people kind of figure out how to play basketball after hand checking goes away so mike d'antoni runs wild then we get a counter movement then we get people who say oh well what if we paired extremely high pace uh with uh with some old school ideas you know we instead of having guys come off 15 foot pin downs what if they come down double staggers for threes um And then the decade following that is the intersection of big data and player development. Um, More than almost ever, we see guys who get drafted later in drafts, you know, late lottery, late first round, second round, become stars um, because they all have these interesting data profiles. And the NBA has figured out how to player development, how player development works for specific things. So every team sort of has the answer for what they believe can be fixed in a player and what they believe can't be fixed in a player. And so we see guys like Nikola Jokic, who you know, watching his his Mega Baymax tape was like, there's the least athletic dude you could imagine." But he threw passes that you, Sabonis, you know, just it would make Sabonis cry. And you think, okay, well, can I can I make the athleticism either better or not matter? And Denver's answer was, "Yeah, we think we can figure that out." You know, with Kawhi, he's you know a, an awful uh, true shooter. Uh, when you look at his college numbers, he's a guy who lived off like. Just really tough shots to to get there, but he was capable of defending four positions in college, and people looked at his shooting form and said, "Yeah, I think we can fix that." Um, with Teo, I don't necessarily see what he's good at right now, or what he's bad at right now, and turning that into a star is something that, in player development, I don't believe is really possible. A guy who operates with uh, like a, a, a supreme sense of competence, but not necessarily one of risk taking, not one of uh, like living with advantage creation and just like, you know, letting it go. Like, Luka Doncic's whole thing was like, I'm going to create advantage no matter what and I'm going to live with what happens afterwards. And Teo sort of seems to me to be the opposite. I'm going to live with competence just because, I, you know, he, this is sort of the, the, the downside of playing the right way. Is that like, you, you can live with playing the right way because you know it's the right decision. But when you watch him play, that's not necessarily a pathway for his stardom. It's a way for his teams to be solid.
1: So a guy who... The back end, the help side sinks. He's going to spray to the corner. They space out. He's going to hit the roll man. But when the pass is at its most wide open, not when it's at its most advantageous. And I guess if you want to create the best looks, you have to make it happen when it's at its most advantageous, not its safest. As far as, so Grant Riller is the guy you talked about being like, that's the guy the Raptors need to draft. Is there a guy in the front court that you really like? Because you said Zeke was not super exciting for you. He's going to he's going to provide certain things that you you say you can find, I guess, pretty easily. So who's the front court guy who excites you the most that might be available to the Raptors at 29?
0: Uh, Killian Tilly. Uh, probably. I mean, probably one of the most dominant college players in the last four years. Um, every time he was on the court, it's a uh, ridiculous uh, offensive mismatch. Uh, He's a, you know, forward out of Gonzaga, um, a legendary shooter. um, uh, Hyper skilled. uh, He has chronic issues with his feet. If he was not hurt, he would probably be like a top 15 draft pick. Um, A guy who has the skills of a player who could turn an NBA playoff series. And if you're picking late in the draft, to me, the only thing that really matters is you know, those last 16 wins. And finding a guy who can even give you one or two of those 16 wins is more valuable than, you know, uh, a a cheap contract or, you know, a guy who ends up to be okay value. It's like the actual value when you're a playoff team is, you know, getting to the next round. And while that seems pretty productive, um, when watching Killian Taylor, even just like taking a glance at his stats. um, It seems hard to envision getting a guy at 30 who can do the things he does. Um, again, I believe he has multiple years above forty percent from three. Um, uh, all of his advanced numbers are absolutely nuts. <laughs> In uh, twenty-four games at, at Gonzaga this year, uh, he had a one thirty offensive rating against a ninety-two defensive rating, which is just, it's just ludicrous stuff. Uh, BPM of twelve. There's there's so much to like here if you if he has the green light from a medical staff. Um, this is not a matter of you know what is his skills, what does this translate. It's can you get somebody to vouch for the ankles and the feet and the knee um because every time he was on a court in college it it, it was unfair
1: i typically really love the gonzaga guys fun fact i played not for gonzaga but i went to two summers in a row i went to tournaments there and uh got to hang out with like i know and david stockton and like the kelly olenix and like kevin pangos of the world were kind of hanging around showing us kind of what to do and reads to make, and all that kind of stuff. Fun fact, David Stockton, I'm a left-handed shooter, and he kept calling me goofy, and he beat me in a three-point competition shooting left-handed, even though he's right-handed. And it was like the worst thing ever. But Killian Tilly, that's a, yeah, he's super fun. And it would be, why not aim for the ceiling play, right? Because the Raptors seem to be able to find four players a lot, or at least kind of craft them out of players who are hanging around in the 905. Why not go for the guy who provides this incredible ceiling and amount of value where you're picking at? So Killian Tilly, how do you think he applies to the Raptors? Like he's so dominant in college, it's that incredible shooting. But on the Raptors, how do you see the fit provided that he's healthy?
0: Um, Again, you can probably get away with playing him at the five Pascal and OG are on the floor and he spaces. Um earlier I misspoke and said he had two seasons over 40%. He's four oh he's forty-four percent for his career, and every season is above 40%. <laughs> his lowest season is actually 40%. So I would apologize for slandering Killian and Tilly by saying he was only sometimes a 40% three-point shooter. Um, I mean the combination of of dribble pass shoot centers, um, even if he's only like six ten, um his Offensive versatility is gonna just you're gonna run five out um you're gonna have space for uh for basically any action you want um you can you know run high d h o with him and defenses have to respect it um, the like getting forcing centers to close out hard and knowing that he can make what dribble in a good decision um knowing that he can get to the rim. You know, if if a team closes out super hard, and knowing that he's again a legendary shooter, uh, to me this seems like I don't want to say Marc Gasol replacement because he's nowhere near the defender, but in terms of a guy who will play spot minutes and be um, a court warper and a way of and a way for Nurse to drop really interesting sets to get OG and and Pascal in spots um, where like Pascal works out of sort of these like half spaces in the NBA and you have to get to lineups that make his life easier. Well, is a great finisher around the rim. Um, when bad lineups or you know, bad actions or when defenses have the right personnel to gum up a little bit of the more normal stuff, it'd be nice to have a lineup where you say, okay, those half spaces are now full spaces. Like, now, if we run, you know, Lowry, Tilly, pick and roll, like you now have two, excellent shooters and you better call it, you better bring a third guy over to, to beat that rotation. And now if the ball goes to Pascal, there's a defense in rotation and he's able to get easier looks, which seemed to be the problem at the end of last year.
1: Yeah. Agreed. He's a super exciting player. What uh before we move on from him, what do you think the likelihood is that he hangs around to twenty nine?
0: Um, this one is pretty difficult. Um because I think that a lot of teams value him above the first pick, above the uh like value him around that like late lotto early twenties spot, but it's a matter of what a medical staff will sign off on. Um and so in that element, like if if you told me that Killian Tilly went fifteenth, I'd be like, that makes a lot of sense. If you told me Killian Tilly went forty fifth because of the injury concerns and no medical staff signing off on him, um, you know, which just happened with like, you know, EK and a bogu or, you know, other guys who were first round talents in their draft but didn't necessarily get the uh the green light from from medical staffs. Um, both of those circumstances make sense. Um, how much faith do you currently have in the Raptors medical staff?
1: Quite a bit. I think they've, they've shown quite a bit. Like, I think they deserve a good faith reading on most of the things they do, if I had to guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my outside read, uh, granted it's, it's from quite a bit farther than you. So I'm sure there's, you know, uh, ankle tweaks and, um, uh, you know, finger jams that every fan base has their time that they think the medical staff played it wrong or whatever. But I mean, after the Kawhi thing alone, you know, there's the expectation that like the Raptors have, uh, as good of a medical staff as, as anybody else around, um, and are willing to take, uh, have modern solutions to modern problems.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Is there anybody else you want to talk about that you'd like the Raptors to target? Some guys that you find interesting at the back end, and I can just I can just kind of walk through it with you and learn some things.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think Trey Jones is interesting. Um, he's a... Uh, jack-of-all-trades master of none, card um but he's also like a guy who if you blended his two seasons together would be like far more fascinating um i think he's also the guard most damaged by context in this draft um he returned to duke into a situation that was set up for him to fail um they just they, they played just some awful lineups where a guy who whose challenge was shooting was forced to shoot um and there were serious improvements made um but it wasn't a circumstance for him to ever really look good. Um, you know, ACC Player of the Year, fantastic defender. Um, took a little bit of a step back uh, in his sophomore year, um, but a guy who I think is going to fall uh, based on the difference between his his freshman and sophomore year at Duke. Um, I think he's probably a third guard. Um, but he's a guy who you know he's a he's more of a scorer than his brother. Um, and I think that he was always considered to be the better Jones, um, even coming up through the high school ranks. Uh, he's he's wired a little bit more aggressively. And it's a guy who I keep coming back to him to be like, I think we're overthinking this. Um, I think that there's so much good tape. And like I generally think that shooting is super fixable, uh, especially when it's like his issue seems to be his balance. Like, he just needs to like do more squats <laughs> and just add a little more of the posterior chain. Uh, and uh, bodies generally fix in the NBA. Like everyone is really good at, at you know sorting out balance issues for the most part. Um, so that's a guy who he's not going to be the most exciting pick, but um, I think that to me he has even more of a like he he's seen as less of a star bet than Maladon, but I think that he might actually have a little more star equity just based on his ability to make things happen that Maladon can.
1: Event creation is the term, yeah. right? Like he can yeah. kind of shake it up. Yeah. Okay. That seems like a good list of guys for the listeners to chew on. So I want to appeal to how you look at the game. So there's a lot of minute details details. Sorry, that you refer to both on this podcast, in the own podcast that you have, and your writing, which listeners you can find on Patreon for free, or you can, you know, throw some money as way to help him keep doing the Excellent coverage that he does, but there's a lot of the minute details that you talk about, a lot of attention to these, you know, same foot, same hand finishes, the type of English you're seeing on the ball when they're at the rim, the fundamentals of the... Of the jump shot, like the types of reads they're making as far as like in the pick and roll, how they're reading the back end of the defense, not just their primary defender. A lot of stuff that doesn't get attention, I think, in most popular, I guess, ri- sports writing. it's There's not a lot of cliche in it. There's not a ton of player comparison. It's just these hard reads of what a player is doing. What made you look at the game this way, and what are the things that initially pop to you when you're watching a player for the first time? What do you look for?
0: Wow, Um, thank you for for that extremely flattering uh, description. Um, So, (laughs) uh, I mean, basketball is my day job, Um, so for me, this is uh, this is always the way that I've kind of viewed it. Um, The reason why my Patreon is free is that a lot of modern basketball coverage doesn't necessarily interact with like the day-to-day living of basketball players and basketball coaching. Um, things like narrative don't really enter into practice. You know, they don't enter into private scale workouts or, um, into the weight room. And so what I wanted to do was get people who are interested in learning more about the day-to-day game and what players are seeing in their own film rooms. Um, and being able to apply that because of failing, you know, most telecasts or breakdowns of the game are not, uh, you know, are more interested in uh, an entertainment product than just being straight informative.
1: And Mark Jackson saying he's going to (laughs) hit Savannah (laughs) James out of the park, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, like um, you know, uh, Mark Jackson, a famously unemployed basketball coach. Um, (laughs) So I think that uh, for me, what I, try to do in my work is give people tools to apply to their own um, way of viewing the game so uh, I have two major series that I've been working on for this draft class um, one is the heuristic which is uh, a tool to try to teach people how to scout from highlight videos um, because highlight videos contain more truth than fiction in uh, in guard prospects so like if a guy can get to the rim against everybody like That's probably his skill. And then, um, you know, after going through like the the 12 minute highlight video, I put in 10 clips of of added context from me watching, you know, eight or 10 games usually. And then I go through stat breakdowns to be like, okay, so what what is it that I saw in this highlight tape that's present in stat breakdowns? What's not present? Um, And I try to use I have these five five rules that I apply to each one and walk through so that people can. Rather than be saying, oh, this is what PD thought about this player, be like, okay, so here's some tools that I can apply. So even if like I'm, you know, I'm wrong, which like I often am, and that's the purpose of my work is to be wrong so I can go back later and be like, hey, look, here's the thing I was real dumb about. Um, it's to give people tools so that in their own analysis they can, you know, make a different argument for that player. Or when they see something different, or could look back at, at their own, you know, previous analysis of players, um, have a have a perspective that may have a perspective that allows them to critique themselves more than, than the prospect. Because often our mistakes aren't because of what a player is, they're because of how we evaluated the player. Whether it's you know, putting too much into the bit of information that uh, you know, this player was a bad interview, so you assume he's a bad teammate. Uh, shout out to the Phoenix Suns. Who thought that Kawhi was uh, too nervous to be an NBA player? I believe, and he sweated through his suit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, random information clutters our brains. Um, and then uh, my second series that I do is uh, Slow Feed Donnie, which is uh, my review of uh, ten different big prospects. You know, the heuristics for ten cards, the Slow Feed Donnie isn't for ten bigs, and walking through pick and roll coverages. Um, so you know, it's taking every type of pick and roll coverage that NBA teams run and then just showing clips of that particular big doing them, and saying, okay, well, what here is fixable? What here is not fixable? Um, what is it that the teams are looking for? Because a lot of times like somebody scores and something, you know, it, it may not be the big's man, but it may be the big's fault. And so being able to parse that blame and understanding that, you know, certain coaches like certain schemes, you know, if you can't do ice, like Tibbs will not like you full stop. <laughs> you could be the greatest big in the world. If you can't ice, like he's going to be, it's, it's really going to be hard for him. Um, so what I'm looking for with every player that I watch is generally trying to figure out what scheme would be best for them. You know, what, how do they have to play to be successful? What is the best developmental pathway for them forward? Um, and the tools that I use for that are, you know, looking at some stats. Um, it's mostly, you know, film just from, from day job, but it's also, you know, looking around the league and seeing like, you know, oh, we have a whole bunch of people who love to run DHOs. This guy, you know, is terrible at a handoff, so he can't go to a DHO place. Or, you know, if uh, you have a place that is, you have a, a like the old Spurs who turned around shooting. Okay, well, you can, you can you can bet that they'll take more shooters because they believe they can fix it. Um, when I look at wings, I have six categories that I generally break skill development into. That's field, dribbling, shooting, playmaking, point of attack, defense, off-ball defense, and roll. And I try to categorize every wing into one area that will most likely return value. So, like, when I evaluate Isaac Kura, uh the area of most concern for him that his evaluation comes down to is shooting. Like, if he can't shoot, he's a different type of prospect than if he can't shoot. Um, and so... Going through each one of those, I try to give uh, my readers, like, what I'm seeing when I see Isaac Crosshute or what I see when um, when I see uh, Devin Vassell dribble. So it's a way of giving, uh, like, both my opinion and a way of, like, if you want to evaluate this sort of idea in the future, here's the the tools to do so in the hopes that, like, if you took nothing else from this, here's a way to uh, evaluate that going forward.
1: That's yeah. That what a I guess you do a great job of explain explaining your. It seems very in depth to somebody who, you know, I I played okay basketball and I feel like I read the game at an okay level. A lot of your readings of the game seem extremely detailed and also, you know, at least at least. When you're in, when you're engaging with something that is different than from what you usually see from a reader's perspective, it can seem alienating. But in your writing and in your explanation, I think the layman's terms and the how you relay that information, I think is is valuable because I think you do it in a good way. You also, as far as what you wrote about Malachi Flynn, you were gushing over his in and out dribble and how great it was. What do you think is the most advantageous dribble move that a player can use? That allows them the easiest access to their pickup point of their jump shot. That can feign as pick, a pickup point. Then you could use a push dribble or a drop dribble. Like, wh- which is your favorite dribble move that just allows for the most creation afterwards?
0: Left hand in and out. Whatever your whatever your powerful hand is, the opposite one. Oh my god! Like, if every like mediocre high school guard got a left hand in and out, they'd average four more points a game. Like it. It is just one of those things that breaks people's brains because they, they see someone dribbling with their left hand and think he's going back to the right. And you just give him a hard in and out. You can walk down to a left hand layup every single time. Um, if we want to get uh, just like a little more general, um, playing out of hang dribbles is super important. Um, I, you know, like Markel was just fantastic at this. And sometimes I'll just go back and watch the, the
1: tape of him at Washington. I love Markell, man. His That's my favorite mixtape ever. I think was his Washington mixtape. He's a genius, and I still he's one of my favorite players in the league. I love watching him play. He's he's amazing.
0: If you can get if you can get a hang dribble in and out, and then like if if you just want to appeal to my heart, like a T Mac three is like my uh, the final thing of like if you just wanted to build the type of uh, creator I love. Like uh, there's a clip uh, on Twitter. that I posted Miles Powell just like doing just an absolutely perfect T-Mac over like a 6'9 dude. So T-Mac is where you hang dribble and then as uh, you're coming down from the hang dribble, you explode as hard as you can usually with your outside foot towards the rim. And as you're as low as you possibly can, you pick up and shoot. So you're in a lunge position and from the lunge position, you gather to shoot and uh, when you do it properly, you get about nine feet of space because (laughs) the defender reads it as like, I have to go slide my feet to get back and... You know, they've watched like KD hit Braun with this for that like final head tap in the, in the Golden State uh, uh, Cleveland series. And it's just it's just one of those moves that like once you really figure out the footwork and it's hard. It's hard to go from, you know, basically making an L with your body of pushing all of your weight horizontal and then pushing all your weight vertical back to back. But um, yeah, if I can tell any uh, guards listening left hand in and out work on your hang dribbles and T-Mac pull up. If you will. That is a package
1: yeah as far as last question before i let you get out of here who is the most deceptive i guess user of their pivot in the whole league is that is that too minute or do you have a guy no who, no like, i mean like that's...
0: are we are we are we including travels because like Kawhi's is the answer because Kawhi just switches pivot feet, and it's incredible like it's a really hard skill to learn how to travel in the nba like this sounds dumb but like nba rules are different than everyone else's rules so like guys are allowed to um be creative in their interpretation of what could or couldn't be allowed, and it's also scaled by how much you know money you make. Like yes. you know, uh, second round draft picks aren't allowed to um, get a little Picasso-ish with their footwork. If you're brawn, if you're hard, like you're allowed a little more leeway, and that's fine and good. Um, so, like, I think that watching Kawhi figure out how to do the double pivot, like where you catch it, you establish a pivot foot, and then you take a second, then you repivot. Is uh, a thing that like when you try to teach it to like young wings who you know are like that's not a real move. And you just watch the compilation of Kawhi establishing a double pivot, and like you'll see Pascal do it sometimes, and it's a layup almost every time. It's such a because you catch it, you're facing away, you pivot the first time to like get to perpendicular. So usually for Pascal, be right shoulder to the rim, and then you rip through again on the opposite pivot foot to get you know facing up to the rim, and you have to time it a certain way. Usually you want to do the first pivot just after your hands hit the ball. Um so that the ref is looking at, at the at the ball, then you slide the first foot, and then you just go through a normal pivot. And uh, a lot of a lot of really advanced footwork you have to detach like from what your brain knows about you know travels. It's like teaching a person a off step, their brain says like this is a travel. Because the entire life they've been taught to travel. Same thing with the double rip through. Like your brain thinks it's a travel, and then once you detach and the ref doesn't call it the first three times, then you're just roasting people with it.
1: Yeah. I uh I love the, uh, I guess, the interpretation aspect of it. I made this um, point before in my writing, but I compared James Harden to a lawyer who's looking for precedent in a legal case from years back so that he can apply it today, and he gets away with it. And now mm-hmm. it's just, that's how it exists. This is now the precedent. And he's his interpretations of the rules so that it could be advantageous for himself has been genius level and you uh, know the Kawhi Leonard one is a great example of that is there uh, a guy in in the post that you like a lot too
0: oh uh if we can go with a Jimmy Butler stutter rip through that's another uh absolutely fantastic one so a stutter rip through is where you start a rip through so we'll say going left to right you get to about your midpoint and then you act like you're you slow down and change back to your left and so the defender reads this as you're going to your left and then you just continue the rip through so if you just right now we'll start on one of your shoulders you rip it through to your waist, then come back to the left and go back. Right. So catch the ball wide, then make a Z. Um, people's brains turn off. When you start to bring it back left, they're like, Oh, we're going left. It's okay. you rip back. Right. And it's over. Uh, I've, you know, teaching this to high school and college guys. And I mean, just do this in a pickup game. And Oh my God. I mean, obviously not right now because of the world we're in, but next time <laughs> you get in a pickup game, um, you copy that Jimmy Butler stutter rip through and, uh, there's free five points before anybody figures it out. And that's before you even get to the counters or, you know, hero out of it, pro hop, spin. Like there's a lot of game out of just like some simple stuff.
1: Yeah, that's what, 45 extended. That's where he has it usually. It's that stutter. Yeah. And then yeah. if you can pro hop back into the middle and then kind of get oh, yeah. funky with your pivot and just be strong in there like he is. Yeah, he's a menace. That's a, that's a good one as well. How about, any post players you want to? I guess uh, highlight their their pivot action, their footwork. I mean, it feels
0: cheating to say Sabonis just because like he had the greatest teacher of all. Um, right. I mean, watching Jokic is really strange because like his his center of gravity is really high. Like usually, guys who are great post players play through their hips. Um, like Hakeem, when you watch him, his center of gravity is essentially on the ground. But like Jokic, like sort of like leans into you with shoulders and chest, and just. Raises other people's uh, you know center of gravity higher, and then he changes it up. I mean, it's interesting because he doesn't need the same angles everybody else does. Like the sunburst shuffle is, you know, the feet point are pointed really weird. Like it, you know, most guys like Kawaldrich is famous for this. Like he he would get you know forty five degrees for a jump hook, and he's either a swoosh or an air ball. But like he had to get his feet to forty five degrees, he wouldn't take the shot. Like Jokic takes his shots from like the bizarre. Ridiculous footwork angles. Where if you just paused it and like you know, and showed it to like a middle school or a high school coach or whatever, they like that's the worst shot I've ever seen. And then you hit play, and he you know immediately banks it off the glass because he's you know seeing angles in a much different way. Um, we're at a really wonderful time in our game where you know freedom is uh, is so emboldened that guys are like really trying things and going back to. To tape and trying, you know, being like, oh, well, the interpretation on this is different. So let me try to put some sw- to some swing on it. Um, I'm excited to see what guys bring back, especially because every year it feels like um, people go into the lab with whatever worked in the, the postseason. So I'm sure we're going to see a whole bunch more uh, lessons learned from from Jokic and Anthony Davis uh, long runs into the postseason.
1: Yeah, my favorite Jokic one was when the guy tried to pull the chair and he just went up backwards and did a layup. Like, he's his interpretation of the game because there's an infinite amount of interpretations for every single thing that happens. So it gets really interesting when a guy like Jokic starts just seeing the game and, like, those little, like, hit-ahead passes in the space of four feet that he throws from, I guess, low post to the cutter, like Gary Harris or Jamal Murray, guys who... Are so good around the rim as well just the, the synergy that team plays with and that i guess Jokic just kind of brings with him as long as you're willing to get near the basket and have your hand out is just yeah really fun yeah. time in the game yeah the first time i saw him throw that medicine ball uh
0: chess pass like the one where he throws it and it just dies. like the ball he he loves it. it's sort of a lob but it ends up going to like right in the person's hands at their waist but it looks like he's throwing a medicine ball because just like he lightly taps it the ball just dies and you're like where is that going and then Gary Harris, like, scoots in there, catches it at his knees and flips it up. And you're like, oh, I guess we have people who can throw that pass now. Um, I guess we're making 6'11", people like that.
1: What's your uh, What's your read? I love Gary Harris. I think he's I, – I adore his game. What's your read on his shot mechanics? What happened to that jumper, man?
0: I think that there's, like, a shoulder injury or something. Like, mm-hmm. to me, it, it looks like somebody – adjusting around an injury, whether it's like shoulder or ribs or something. Um, It looks like a guy who's uncomfortable. Like, you know, the NBA is a job and we're all creatures of habit. And it seems like somebody who's trying to do something the same way as before, but there's like a pain involved or a discomfort um, in his upper body. Um, History would say that Gary Harris is a very, very, very good shooter and that this is an aberration um, and if, I don't think it's an aberration of confidence. It seems to be an aberration of some uh, some physical discomfort. So I think that we're going to see him back to normal uh, when the season starts on December 22nd or whatever.
1: I think so, too. That's I wanted the Raptors to trade for him last year. I really, even though Powell ostensibly had a better year, I wanted Powell for Harris. But I know the Nuggets value Harris highly, correctly. Yeah. They do. Yeah, so. I also
0: think that, like, I think that Jokic, well, he is uh, like it seemingly easy to play with. I imagine learning his rhythms is a difficult adjustment for guards. Like he makes your life easier, but you also have to like learn to play on his rhythm, which mm-hmm. uh, is very different than how basically everybody else in the league plays.
1: So I think. I mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, after you. Uh, Malik Beasley. You know everything aside from what's happened with him, as far as recently his troubles with the law of which the extent I'm not sure about but I from what I've read last has been not good but I think he fit really well in with Carl anthony Towns right away because of his you know aforementioned I guess having to deal with the quirks and rhythms of Nikola Jokic could kind of slide in nice next to Carl anthony Towns for example.
0: Yeah I mean and Towns has really developed as a passer like that's one of the uh more interesting subplots It's like, I think that, uh, you know, whenever you have somebody who's as ridiculous as something as Jokic, you don't really notice the people who are, you know, become very good because like, when you have have had incredible, very good, it's only but so interesting. But, uh, yeah, Cat is going to continue to grow as a passer just as, teams have to respect the ridiculous shooting gravity. Um, and I'm sure Malik Beasley being like, hey, so um, I saw Jokic those behind the back lob pass. you think you got that in the bag? Like, that's certainly got to help when, you know, you have a guy who's played with another creative passer being like, how do you feel about this angle?
1: Yeah, and just saying like, hey, th- like this angle, I've seen it used before. It's yeah. probably there for you. You're just as tall. The, the arms are there too. Like, you could probably make it work. And then, you know, you show this guy. Oh, there, I'm sure there's a sci-fi example or an allegory yeah. where it's a, uh, a guy is. It's a,
0: it's a little bit of cultural exchange.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, PD, uh, this has been illuminating for me. Super enjoyable as well. Love to have you on at some point during the season. But before we get out of get out of here, the floor is yours, man. Uh, plug away whatever you think the people should be reading or listening to.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at above the break three um in in my bio is a link to my patreon um where i have the aforementioned wing series which has covered pretty much everybody in the first rounders wing with a few second round guys uh, along with the guard and, and center series um i do a podcast called it's about joy which is the least serious thing in the world where i just call up somebody uh, and talk about uh, a basketball player who brought us joy for 20 minutes. And I make them very uncomfortable uh, when I surprise them with a Bill Walton quote. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. And it's also uh, a nice change up in a difficult time. So if you would like really serious analysis, um, I can suggest the, uh, the written work. If you would like something deeply unserious, um, the feeling states about joy are up. I want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation.
1: Yeah. And listener, I know a lot of you people who listen to the podcast enjoy my insights in my writing and via the podcast. For me, if you enjoy my takes on basketball, I think you'll really love PD's. I cannot co-sign his work enough. It's exhaustive. It's so wide ranging and it's just so minute in all the right places. I learned from it and you will too. So PD, thank you very much for coming on, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right, listener. That's it for the podcast. I'll see you next time, which will be with Blake Murphy. And we'll be talking about the free agency and what's coming with it. And uh, obviously everybody knows he's a genius when it comes to kind of understanding the cap. So we'll get into some of the implications with that. But this is it. It's over. And whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.